I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, good evening. Welcome to this London Review Bookshop event, uh, carried out remotely, as you will have noticed, with me, Michael Rosen, and Rachel Clark. And we'll be talking this evening about what the pandemic means for public health, the NHS, social justice, the economy, and indeed each other. In a personal way. The format of this evening is that um, we're both presenting, we're talking to each other, maybe even about each other occasionally, and uh, I'm going to be kicking off. So I'm going to be introducing Rachel to start, to start with. Um, Rachel is a palliative care doctor, very proud to work in the NHS, and she's the author of Breathtaking, which is uh, an account of the, of the pandemic, and Dear Life, uh, which, has been, which is about death and dying. Rachel's going to introduce me, I think, and then I'll be asking. Thank you, Michael. And hello, everyone. It's doing this event with somebody who has, whether he likes it or not, become one of the poster boys of COVID-19 in the UK. Michael Rosen uh, is so well known, so well loved, author, broadcaster, and academic um, teaches literature and has written the most wonderful book about his experience of catching COVID-19 very early on in the first wave of the pandemic and being gravely unwell for many weeks in intensive care. The book's called Many Different Ty Kinds of Love uh, and it is um, not only Michael's account but also um, includes letters written to him by all of the NHS nurses, doctors, carers who were supporting him in intensive care. Uh, it's a wonderful book. And his other pandemic-inspired uh, piece of literature is a children's book about Sticky McStickstick, who is a very important character who I, we may come on to during the course of this discussion. So, so welcome, Michael, and everyone this evening. Thanks very much, Rachel. And the bad news this evening is that Rachel's mother stole her copy of Many Different Kinds of Love. So just warning you of that, though, if anybody can track down Rachel's mother, that would be yeah, very good to hear about that. Yeah. OK, so look, um, let's start with now and then, and then we'll go back, Rachel. Uh, you're right in the thick of it all. Uh, you know, we had a meeting earlier today that you came to a bit late because quite rightly you were 
not at a hospital. So where are we right now? What does it feel like to be in a hospital today? Well, it's a funny old day today, Michael, because uh, as anyone who's been following the news today w- will know, the Prime Minister has just announced uh, this afternoon that we're going to essentially end all of our COVID restrictions and public health measures next week. Uh, and at the same time, our fatality rate from COVID at the moment is is over 300 deaths a day from COVID-19. Uh, we've still got nearly 20,000 hospital beds filled with patients who have COVID. And at the moment, I, I work in a big acute hospital doing palliative care. So I'm, I'm going to review patients all over every bit of the hospital from A&E to intensive care. And the hospital's jam-packed. Everyone is working flat out. Things have got a little bit better than they were a couple of weeks ago, I'm very pleased to say. But that doesn't stop the NHS being under huge, huge pressure. We don't have 20,000 spare beds in NHS hospitals. We don't have any spare beds. So things are really tough and staff are really, really exhausted after the two years we've just had. Um, And I must say, I'm feeling very anxious about the idea that we're going to now say the pandemic's over. Let's crack on with normal life, because I think with those statistics, you know, it clearly isn't. So are you of the view that this is a mistake, that that what was announced today was a mistake and that we should be not giving or they shouldn't be giving this signal? Because in a way, that's what we keep doing is reading the runes, don't we? They, They seem to be saying, oh, well, it's the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning or it's a new beginning or something like that. Whereas from where I sit, I just see these figures and. And to be fair, the BBC shows this graph and, you know, it's, it's mm. high, you know, in comparison mm. to where we were at other times when it's been lower. Um, so you say you're uneasy. I mean, would you, if, in other words, in your position, would you be saying, no, don't do that? A hundred percent. Yes. We all are desperate to live our lives as normal, like as the old normal, nobody wants to wear a mask, be restricted. Uh, I'm as guilty as anyone of sort of desperately longing for life to be like it used to be in 2019. But it doesn't matter how much we yearn for our old lives, we are still here in reality, whether we like it or not. And I suppose I feel as though we have come a long way from that first wave of the pandemic when the government mantra was we will follow the science, we are following the science. For a long time now, the science has been divorced from the politics. The political decision making has very clearly been motivated by and timetabled by other factors beyond what is best for the health of the nation, I would argue. So the most striking example of that is just over a year ago. So as we were going into winter 2020, when cases were shooting upwards and uh, the government really strongly resisted lockdown, we had Patrick Vallance, Chris Whitty, the SAGE scientists all saying, you need to lock down, you need to lock down. 
and we had a government saying, let's have a five day party over Christmas, essentially. And that decision making, the decision not to lock down then until after Christmas, until January, led to around 40,000 deaths in the ensuing couple of months. I mean, I don't know what you feel, Michael, when you reflect back now on those astonishing numbers, 176,000 people with COVID on their death certificate as a as a cause of death, and one of those could have so easily been you. What's your reflection on politics versus health over the last two years? Hmm, that's that's very well expressed. The fact that we, we we can separate these things out when all the time when we look at government on the screen, uh, which is mostly how we perceive government these days, that we somehow think that they are these two things are enmeshed. But you've separated them out very clearly there. Um, as did I, um, I have to say, uh, as I slowly came round. So my situation, just in case people don't know, was that I got ill with COVID in March 2020 and ended up in intensive care, was in a coma for 40 days, and then over the next two or three months was slowly coming out of that state of being in a coma, in a coma as Rachel knows only too well, because you don't just sort of wake up, which is often how it's described, you, you sort of you go through various phases of wooziness until maybe even as late as three or four months later. And in that time, I began to piece together what had gone on in February, March 2020. And I sort of put together the announcements made by Boris Johnson and indeed by some of the top government scientists in relation to this thing that was coming. Uh, if I might dive in there with Boris Johnson's speech in Greenwich in February 2020. Now, I read bits of it. It's in very odd, weird language, but I think it was a form of sign language. So he said, this is him. We are starting to hear some bizarre autarkic rhetoric. We we'll you know, you know what kind of language he uses. When barriers are going up and when there's a risk that new diseases, such as coronavirus, will trigger a panic and a desire for market segregation that go beyond what is medically rational to the point of doing real and unnecessary economic damage. Then at that moment, humanity needs some government somewhere that is willing at least to make the case powerfully for freedom of exchange. Some country ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles and leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing, sorry about this folks, as the supercharged champion of the right of the populations of the earth to buy and sell freely among each other. So this coded stuff was all about saying in February 2020 that we don't want public health policy, which is what the World Health Organization is asking for. We're going to do this stuff through the market. We can cope with the virus. I mean, you know, it's just extraordinary in scientific terms that somehow or other the market, think of a market, you know, dealing with a virus, you know, and he's notice how he's talking about things like you know, beyond what is medically rational. So that's an attack on your profession in its own way, uh, Rachel. And he, he talks about real and unnecessary economic damage. And then he's saying there's the economy. So you pose politics and science, politics and health, politics and NHS, but also, if you like, politics and the economy. Yeah, but he's going unnecessary economic damage. So he's rejecting the WHO advice at that point, which was saying the only way to deal with this is with a public health policy. I believe that was the phrase that they were using. And then you've got all that Clark Kent, extraordinary rubbish, and so on. Yes, so when I read that, 
and think, well, that's why lockdown came late in March 2020. Though, stupid old me, I was heading around, walking into uh, schools, going to college, um, or indeed going to uh, a football stadium twice, uh, in exactly in that period between the time he said that and the time it's between then and the time I got ill. So, yes, that's my sort of personal response to, to your question. But, of course, again, it hit you. I mean, tell us what it was like for you. You were there in a hospital and, you know, the kind of work the rhetoric people use, words like waves. But how did it feel for you at that moment? Mm. Uh, following on from the, the, the superhero Clark Kent language, there was an awful lot of lofty rhetoric around the start of this pandemic and it and it's continued ever since. And, and I have to say, from the perspective of being a frontline NHS doctor, sort of in, in the thick of this, one of the things that I took violent exception to was the misuse of language and the deliberate manipulation of words to spin a emotional and violently dishonest account of reality in order to big up government decisions and specifically big up Boris Johnson. So he loved using battle rhetoric. You know, we are fighting this. Um, we were the front line. Um, we were heroes. We were angels in the NHS. And actually, of course, the reality, there is nothing noble or heroic or idealistic or grandiose about the reality of a pandemic. A politician like Boris Johnson may believe he is acquiring political capital from taking violence to the English language in that way. But the reality is in a really profound sense, sort of banal, it's horribly banal. You would go to work in the first wave and you would see patient after patient after patient with exactly the same symptoms, exactly the same desperation, who were dying in exactly the same day, way over and over again. And we were impotent. We were pretty powerless. If you think back to March 2020, no vaccines no treatments, not even PPE that was fit for purpose, despite what the government said at the time. So you would go to work every day knowing that you had intensive care beds in your own hospital containing your colleagues who had caught COVID in the same hospital where you worked. I, uh, In my hospital, two porters and a nurse died from COVID and, and, and we all believe and, and, and the evidence suggests they all caught COVID at work. So you'd be dealing with that and you'd be doing everything you could to try and help patients, but you didn't have anything. And, 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 and as doctors, we most doctors are control freaks to some extent. We like being able to manipulate nature. In a sense, that's what medicine is. We are trying to intervene to help people prolong life, save life. And our hands were tied. We didn't have any tools. So we had to see over and over again uh, what Boris Johnson may describe as unnecessary economic restrictions. But what I would describe as a human being dying unnecessarily and perhaps without any interest from the government because they happens to be 
elderly or frail or have a so-called pre-existing condition, which is a capitalist way of saying a past medical history, and therefore they were deemed expendable. They were irrelevant members of the herd. And we all remember the public outcry when that phrase herd immunity was suddenly thrown into public consciousness because most people in Britain are decent and good and kind and care about each other. And we all knew that that weasel phrase herd immunity meant something monstrous. It meant carving up the British population into two categories, those who were young and healthy enough who to be worth saving and those who are old, infirm or expendable enough to be dismissible. And Michael, you were absolutely in the second category. And so I suppose what I would like to ask you, that's what it was like as a doctor when you came round and started to realise all of this for yourself as a patient. How did that make you feel? Well, there was a sort of, how can I put it, a rather extraordinary moment when I was finding it difficult remembering things from immediately before I got ill. That was one of the sort of post-COVID symptoms at the beginning of long COVID, if you like. And then I remembered that actually on March, I believe it was March the 10th, 2020, I'd been in a BBC Today programme studio. Someone had picked up, I'd made some joke about old people being expendable, a wry joke. And so I was asked in. And so I was the last item on the programme. And Martha Carney was asking me questions. And then there was a woman of the same age as me, 74 then. And we were sitting there together. And, and she was asking me, do you feel that the government is treating you as if you're expendable? And I was too kind. I said, well, I wouldn't go that far. I said something like, but I do get the impression there are various people about who are treating us as if somehow or other it matters less if we die. Whereupon the person next to me, in a way, supported that. She said, well, if anyone's going to die, I'd much prefer it was me than my child. And I was a bit slow on this, but in retrospect, I thought, was, and I've discovered lots of people have said this, it's a kind of medieval view that somehow or other you have a choice, you know, that death goes, knocks on the door, opens the door and says, I'll have one of you who's going to come. And then somehow or other the old person would step forward and say, take me. Let my child live. Now, you know, there have been terrible situations in life where that, in a way that has happened. I don't even want to go into them. I'm Jewish in background, so, you know, I don't need to say any more. But, um, the, the, you know, obviously that is not the case with COVID. COVID is not a, a sentient being in that sense, not Mr. Death coming. And so we had this conversation. I may even have actually picked up the infection in that studio at that moment. I've had this chat with Martha Carney. And so also about this herd immunity, extremely in a chill, as I thought, didn't I once have a conversation on Twitter about herd immunity and how it didn't make sense? And the only kind of herd immunity I've ever heard about is rabbits with myxomatosis and didn't millions of rabbits die and hop along the road with their eyeballs hanging out? You know, isn't that similar to what us? We've been maimed and killed because these people have peddled herd immunity. And I went back and then I Googled and I found, and it can't be a coincidence, three government scientists on the same day, on March the 13th, it was, all said herd immunity is the only way we're going to deal with this, and this is all pre-vaccine. So they were pursuing a notion without mentioning deaths, exactly as you've done. You know, you can conjure up all sorts of ideas of, you know, resistance building in a population while millions die, depending on whether you're talking about 
flies, you know, fruit flies or something, or whether you're talking about human beings. But these guys, three of them, I won't name names, uh, it's on my blog if you want to see, they didn't mention mass death. So here was this thing, and the next, you know, the spectator, under a heading uh, for the Robert Peston article, herd immunity will be crucial for us in dealing with the coronavirus. So clearly, they were circulating around. If you marry this to the Greenwich speech that I've just quoted from, well, I get a chill. I mean, to be frank about it, I get a feeling that there was a moment when we really were expendable. And, you know, people have said to me that, you know, somebody said it's genocide, but it isn't genocide. A word in which you say that a chunk of the population are expendable. And again, as you know, there was this decanting moment, whose decision that was, when old people were decanted into the care homes and put a figure on it, Rachel, you know, what was the effect of that? Along with the failed PPE and everything else. I mean, the consultant on my ward said that one day they got secondhand PPE came in and there was blood on it. So that was in my ward and I got a secondary infection. Whether the two things are connected, I don't know. So I got Klebsiella, which is also a killer. So I had the viral pneumonia and then I got the bacterial pneumonia, which cavitates your lungs. So that's fun. So I had that as well. So that's a result, you know, of several things all at the same time. It was a perfect storm. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because the, the, the decanting that you describe, um, so, so, so the evidence shows that probably the loss of life in our care homes in the first wave as a result of that was around 40,000 lives lost. And of course, that just completely belies the rhetoric at the time. So at the same time, as those unnamed three scientists uh, and and politicians um, were talking about herd immunity, we had this other strain of the rhetoric, which was, but we will protect the vulnerable. We will cocoon them. We will shield them. We will look after them. So the idea that was being explicitly presented to the public was the pandemic, the virus is going to cut its sway through the population, but we will look after the most vulnerable. Whereas the reality was we did absolutely nothing to protect those most vulnerable of all people in our care homes, the majority of whom tend to be older adults, but often, of course, can be younger, but have long term disabilities and so on. And they were sitting ducks and I was working in that first wave in a, my, my hospice as well as my hospital. And the contrast between those two environments in terms of PPE was incredible because the hospital at least was getting lots of paper masks and plastic aprons. You can say that wasn't enough, definitely wasn't enough, but at least it was something. The hospice was treated as a care home in terms of PPE. So although it, it, a hospice is really a, a, like a mini hospital for people with terminal illnesses, in PPE terms, we were a care home. So we got sent the same supply of PPE that every care home got up and down the country, which was one box of paper masks, one roll of plastic pinnies and uh, a box of gloves. Literally, that was it. It was enough PPE to keep us going for less than a week. And we realised in March that if we didn't get more PPE, we were going to be placed in the impossible pos position of either having to shut or 
having to risk all of the staff catching COVID and potentially dying from it because we had no PPE to protect them. And uh, we went to the government helpline that Matt Hancock announced in a sort of triumph of glory. I'm going to save everybody with my 24-7 PP hotline. And of course, took a thousand attempts to get through, eventually spoke to someone, said, if you can't give us more PP, we literally tomorrow are going to have to close our hospice and send all our patients who are here because they are dying from COVID, uh, from cancer and other illnesses, we will have to send them all to A&E where they will all catch COVID and die. Please, can you send us some PPE? And they said, no, can't help you. Try calling the Department of Health. Gave us a number, no answer. That was it. And the only reason those vulnerable members of the herd were able to stay in their hospice was because I managed to in desperation, speak to a charity who supplied us with the masks and the PPE we needed. So underlying the rhetoric about protecting the vulnerable was this absolute cavalier disinterest and people in care homes were an afterthought. Nobody really made any attempt to shield them. And in the hospital, we knew there were terrible risks of sending patients back without a negative COVID test. But at that time, it was taking three, four, five days to get a test back. And we were in this agonizing position of thinking, if we send them back and we don't know, they might infect people in their care home. But if we keep them here for five days, they'll catch COVID here anyway, and then they'll die. So what do you do? And all of this was a consequence of having no PPE, no proper testing, none of the things that we could have had if the pandemic had been taken more seriously in February when when the Prime Minister was talking about Clark Kent. And clearly they didn't believe really in test, trace and isolate, did they? It was it was something that, again, the WHO were talking about, I think, by the end of February, but certainly were making clear that, you know, because they'd seen the, the bodies coming out in Italy and I think possibly Spain, and they were saying, because obviously people know about viruses, it's not as if it, in that sense it was unfamiliar to them, and that test, trace and isolate was the only way in which they, they, they would cope. The other thing I was going to mention there, sort of pull out a bit from what you were saying, um, and remind myself that uh, wasn't it in 2014 that, we, that the government ran this uh, a sort of stress test, um, Operation Cygnus, I think they called it, yes? I think yes. it's called Operation Signet, or I don't know which, which of the two it is. But anyway, that's something to do with swans. Um, and they ran it and, in actual fact, had some recommendations, which I believe the likes of you thought were really quite good. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to sort of uh, call you that, but that, um, uh, that people in the medical profession thought, well, this is good. But then they proceeded not to actually to instigate anything. Am I right about that? Operation Signet? Operation Cygnus, and I should know what that means, but I don't. I want to know now. Someone can post it in the chat. <laughs> so this was a, a rehearsal of how everything will cope in a pandemic. And this was undertaken when Jeremy Hunt was um, health secretary. And actually, it, it was a very helpful exercise and it revealed lots of issues that needed to be addressed. One of which was we have 
an inadequate supply of PPE. We used to have a magnificent stockpile, but through the years of austerity budget since 2010, this stockpile has been allowed to erode away and it needs to be addressed and all these other things need to be addressed. And guess what? They all required focus and resources and none of them happened. So there's a peculiar irony in the fact that during the pandemic, Jeremy Hunt has come out and said very sensible things about preparedness, needing more staff. The NHS is short of nearly 100,000 staff. We desperately need more doctors and nurses. The only caveat being would have been really nice if he'd addressed these things when he was actually secretary, but, but of course didn't. But um, Michael, can I ask you something? And this is, I think, because I feel, I feel as though we're having a bleak conversation perhaps inevitably we're talking about a pandemic, but but one of the things that really struck me about your beautiful book, Many Different Kinds of Love, is that in a sense, it is the polar opposite of what we're discussing, this interface between politics, power, health, vulnerability. And what you draw together in that book is a, an extraordinarily intimate and personal account of not just your experience of life-threatening illness, but also your experience of being cared for by the hands, the hands of the NHS that you wrote about in your famous poem, and also the experiences of, of those individuals caring for you. You include their words. And I just wonder if you could describe what it was like in your recovery to realise how you had been cared for by the NHS and what that meant to you? Utterly overwhelming. I mean, to start off with, I had no idea that I'd been in a coma. It wasn't actually explained to me. So I had the slightly extraordinary experience of sitting in a hospital bed thinking that I'd got ill and then I'd been something had happened and about a week or two later I was in a ward. And I didn't really know why. And obviously, I couldn't see Emma or the children every day in the normal way when you come out of uh, intensive care. So I was having these strange sort of odd truncated conversations home on the phone where to start off with the nurses were holding the phone for me and so on. And the first I got to fully understand it was when Emma said you were in intensive care for 48 days. And I thought because I genuinely didn't know that intensive care was where you're cared for intensively. I didn't realise that, you know, I was basically jammed full of drugs, had a ventilator stuck down my throat, and I was out of it completely for 40 days. I had no idea. So then when I started to realise that and piece it together, and then reading the letters, these daily letters from the nurses in what's called a patient diary, I call it my very patient diary, um, the patient diary, which has these letters in, there's about, you know, at least one a day. So I slowly began to realise that nurses had been on an eight hour shift and at the end of it had said, dear Michael, you're doing absolutely great. Keep at it. We had to suction your secretions today. Um, sorry, we had to shave around your tracheostomy wound because we didn't want it to go septic. All the best. You can do this. And the name of the person. Sometimes they weren't ICU nurses, sometimes they were uh, voice therapists, sometimes they were physiotherapists who were filling in. In my ward, there were 11 bays for 11 patients. In fact, there were 24 of us. 
because the crush was so great. And the death count, which you referred to, was 42%. So, you know, in fact, just before I went under and I was signing the piece of paper to give them permission to put me to sleep, I, the guy said, you know, we're going to put you to sleep. Are you OK to sign? And I said, will I wake up? And he said, well, you've got about a 50-50 chance. And I said, well, if I don't sign, he said zero. I remember thinking at the time, 50-50, money, that's pretty good. Um, quite why, presumably I was either heady on drugs by then or um, uh, lack of oxygen. But anyway, so when I read these things that the nurses wrote, I was utterly overwhelmed because they were describing the way they were caring for me, holding my hand, singing me happy birthday on my birthday, telling me about the fact they had read we're going on a bear hunt to their children the night before. Very personal, very intimate, and so on. And I began to think, as I was writing about this, who do, who do I know treats patients like this? And, and the only thing I could think of was parents. That this is what we do. When our kids, and you've got children, Rachel, when they're ill, we rush around, find medicine, find the find, find paracetamol, do all that stuff, and then we sit by their beds and we hold their hands and we stroke them and we stroke them and then we think of a song to sing, a silly song or something like that. And the nurses did exactly that. And so I, I found myself thinking that they're like parents. And then I think I finished that little piece by saying, but they're not my parents. You know, it's mm. a, a kind of contradiction of it. And so it, I was just utterly overwhelmed. And then I thought, well, what is this NHS that, you know, was created so beautifully in 1948 was the idea that we'd create something that cares for us, and the cliche was from the cradle to the grave. It's a good cliche in its own way, and that it would be full of ways of us caring for ourselves, and that, in fact, the act of taxation to pay for it, I always thought of, was a kind of act of love. It was saying, let's love each other, and we let's make our place. Call it whatever you want, they call it a service, which in its own way is good, and it's national, and it's about health, also about disease, of course, numerous breakages. Um, but that it's it's for all of us. And I sort of felt that I'd been absolutely held by it. I felt I was in the, cra talking the cradle. I was in the cradle of the NHS. So, I mean, at times I cried about it and I cried about the idea of Emma sitting at home waiting for the phone calls and and knowing that sort of I was in that place over there being cared for. And, and she wasn't able to come in and see that and to touch me and I wasn't able to touch her. It did send in some very nice raisins when I woke up, though. They were really good raisins. Uh, very important, not for us to raisin wine. And um, I, I, I just overwhelmed by that feeling about the NHS. And, and, you know, you know and I know and we both know of each other. We're, we're fighting for this thing. This thing matters. And, and funnily enough, Michael, I found at the darkest points of the pandemic, so in the midst of the first and, and, and second waves and, and, and last January's wave was so much worse than the first wave for many reasons. It was bigger, it was nastier. It was the second time round. It could have been avoided, but astonishingly, incredibly, we had gone straight into it, despite knowing the consequences of not locking down. All of that made it so traumatic. And I, you know, used to, uh, all of us, we, we wouldn't sleep. We would, I know I have so many friends who 
have developed panic attacks, PTSD, depression, anxiety, one or two colleagues who have had to stop work temporarily, they've been suicidal because of the, the trauma of, of what everyone has seen. And yet, somehow, in the midst of all that darkness of dealing with more death and dying than anyone should ever confront in a lifetime, let alone a few months, and that includes palliative care doctors, despite all of that, there were and continue to be the most extraordinary uh, reasons for hope and optimism and strength and, and, and courage that I've, I draw on every single day at work. And they are all to do with the simple, tiny acts of kindness and compassion and decency and generosity and selflessness that individuals inside a hospital or a GP practice or whatever setting it might be, a care home, try to display towards each other. And, and, and that is not the monopoly of NHS staff by any means. So when I mention these kindnesses, sometimes patients like you, not intubated, able to communicate, would demonstrate, even in the midst of their life and death extremist situation with COVID, they would demonstrate care and compassion to us, the staff. So they would grip your hand and say, it doesn't matter about me, doctor, but I don't want you to catch this. I don't want the nurses to catch this. You have to look after yourself. Or family members, you would be ripping their lives apart on the phone, having to say, I'm so sorry, but your father is not responding. He's not going to survive this. Would you like me to take you into the room on an iPad so you can speak to him while he's still able to? Th those kinds of things. And then a family would make a point of sending in pizza for the staff on the ward, that kind of thing. And every single day, you would see a thousand and one of these tiny examples of radical kindness, the sort of face-to-face, flesh-and-blood, intimate kindness that if you knit all of that together, that's what makes a society what it is. That's what makes us decent and caring and loving. And I got to see that every single day in the pandemic. I get to see it every single day in the NHS. and. I feel as though that is a privilege and it is my extraordinary good fortune to see that every day. And the kind of people who are caring for you, Michael, in intensive care, honestly, you, you, you have seen it shine through in those patient diaries. But these are healthcare assistants, physios, therapists, nurses, doctors who will do things like paint the nails of a female patient in the gorgeous fuchsia pink that she loved because their daughter told a nurse that that's what she liked. So the nurse said, right, get the fuchsia pink in. And she has made a point of spending 10 minutes that she doesn't have painting those nails. 
or rubbing in rose-scented hand cream or carefully shaving your rather scruffy beard, Michael. Whatever it might be, acts of gorgeous, spontaneous, unnecessary on a spreadsheet, but absolutely vitally necessary in human terms, acts of kindness. And there is something true and enduring about that part of human nature, I believe, that shines through this pandemic, despite all of the awfulness we've been through as well. And I don't know if that strikes a chord with your experience. Totally, totally, yes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So I want to finish uh, this uh, this part of the, of the event, Rachel, with a question about where medicine sits in society, if you like, our sort of cultural view of medicine. And so this is from the point of view of a patient. Do you sometimes feel that there is a problem in that us lay folks that we think of you as a sort of mixture between a kind of god and a sorcerer? That's to say, you've got magical powers. I'm ill and you can mend anything and everything. So if I come in and I've got a cough, you can stop the cough. If I come in with a broken leg, you can mend the leg. If I come in with a lump, you can tell me that, to deal with that. And when you don't, we get grumpy and we complain and say you're incompetent and useless because we have this idea. And in a way, I'm gonna say it from my point of view, it's unrealistic. I was lucky to have been cured from COVID, 42%, as I said, on my ward weren't. But it's, it was very, very difficult. We had blood clots. You know, blood clots, you know, could, could any second. I had three blood clots in my hormonary arteries. I had blood clots and uh, hemorrhages in my brain. At any moment, I could have just popped off. The, the consultant put it that way. He said I could have gone off for a cup of tea, come back, and you'd be dead. At the same time, my eye was all blown, and he thought that I was brain dead, as indeed some people have come out of it. Not brain dead, but I mean, that's his expression. Just culturally speaking, is one of the down, it's not a downside, but it's one of the snags of having modern medicine and indeed a, a system like the NHS, which is a, boringly I'll say again, cradle to the grave for everybody, national, that we have a sort of unrealistic notion of what medicine is. Yes, absolutely. But I would say to some extent that is because of the actions and behaviour of medics themselves. So if you think about medicine historically, if you think of your sort of Victorian or 1960s, 1980s even doctor, they were an incredibly paternalistic figure. They were usually male, they were usually white, they were usually um, well-educated, quite wealthy, middle class, and they were used to telling patients 
what was in their best interests with a great and sort of unassailable cloak of authority. And sometimes today I'm struck by the uh, incredible deference that some particularly very elderly patients will show towards doctors will sort of believe that I am going to pronounce from on high what is or is not the right way to do things. Whereas, of course, in reality, doctors are just human beings with all the sort of frailties and failings and weaknesses that anyone else has. And the trouble is, when you are sick and vulnerable and frightened, many people want a degree of authority. You don't want your doctor saying to you when you're an extremist with COVID, we've got no idea what we're doing here. We don't, we've never seen this disease before. We've got no treatments. We're just going to put you on a ventilator and, and, and try and buy your lungs some time. But really, that's all we can do. That's very frightening. So as a doctor, you're always navigating a really uh, difficult, intricate, tightrope of, on the one hand, conveying appropriate authority via some confidence and, and, and faith in your patient security, while not ever promising something that you cannot deliver. And I think that's very hard to do. And I think that doctors are desperate to please. We want to be able to make things better. And sometimes we are far too reticent at saying when we don't know, when we can't do things. So in a way, what you've um, touched on, this sort of this anger when doctors fall off their pedestal and they're not as, as powerful and authoritative as, as, as people may want to believe, that's a result of, that, that's our fault to some degree. I'd also say that the last two years have been an incredible, really, I think, seismic upheaval in the relationship between on the one hand, medicine and science, and on the other, the general public, and sort of mediated by other politicians somewhere in between, we have never, ever experienced anything like the onslaught of abuse and hostility and attacks as NHS staff that we have in this pandemic. So I, I am by in no sense unique when I say I get, I, I get called Satan, a child abuser, a killer, a murderer, someone who deserves to die, all because I advocate for the effectiveness of COVID vaccines and I advocate that COVID is a real serious disease. It is astonishing that to me that NHS staff have been attacked in that way for saying these very obvious things. But I guess in my experience, division and, and, and hostility and, and aggressive attacks, all of those ways of behaving as human beings usually, usually come about when we're frightened. When we're frightened, we go into attack mode. And somehow I think the pandemic has divided us because it's revealed perhaps the limitations of our power as human beings. We think we're so great, we're so technical, we can fly rockets to the moon, but you get a virus which is so small and feeble, it barely counts as a life form and it can just fell us, it can destroy us in our hundreds of thousands and suddenly we're revealed as not really very powerful after all. And I think all of that plays into 
this ongoing relationship between doctors, medics, scientists and, and the public. OK, let me just look at some of the questions now. We've got one particularly about Boris Johnson. Do you think Prime Minister is fit to lead us through the rest of the pandemic? Let me shortcut that one. Um, no. I'll leave you to Rachel for your view on that one. Um, no. <laughs> no cover that one. Uh, Matthew, that was from Claire Cook. Matthew says, what are your opinions on today's announcement to soon remove the requirement to isolating? Well, I think you, you answered that one, Rachel. You were very unhappy about that. that the question came in uh, over half an hour ago. Uh, Patsy Hickman says, everything Rachel says on Instagram is wonderful. I wish the government would listen properly to her. Government, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Hey, we'll clear that up. Uh, Catherine Sean jones says, should scientific view be totally independent from government and pharmaceutical companies? Would that help persuade even more to have the vaccine? So I don't know whether you, you think through these things, Rachel, about the sort of the politics of, in the narrow sense of politics, um, of whether that would help if if scientific advice was completely separate. I mean, we had we have the institution of SAGE. We also have something that set itself up called Independent SAGE, which yeah. I participated in, and they are totally independent. Otherwise, they wouldn't be independent. And quite often, there have been quite a divergence between Independent SAGE and SAGE. So have those views been divergent because, and you have to be very careful here, that SAGE were sometimes or have sometimes been saying things in order to please government? I mean, that's an accusation, so you may not want to go there. I'm, I'm making that a question. I mean, are there problems with the fact that there's some, there are scientists inside as opposed to outside? What do you think? Well, um, there is a very interesting book called Spike, which is written by Sir Jeremy Farrer, who was one of the senior doctor academics on SAGE, so one of the senior people advising the government. And it's his account of inhabiting that role during an unfolding pandemic. And it touches on exactly what Catherine's uh, asked there, the relationship between science and, I suppose, money, profit, politics, people who can capitalise in whatever shape or form from science. And he concludes towards the end of his book that maybe he was complicit in the loss of life because he did not stand up loud and clear in public in September, October, November last year or the year before last now, 2020, and say the government is not following the science. They are telling you they are, but they're not. And he chose not to do that because he believed that he could do more good inside the tent trying to influence than outside shouting the alarm. I personally am the kind of person who shouts the alarm because I can't do anything else. That's how I'm hardwired, but it's on occasion got me in a lot of hot water in one way or another with, with my employers sometimes. The NHS can be quite closed and try and strongly keep the tight reins on its own reputation. And I think this is very difficult and I think it does play into vaccine hesitancy. If the scientists are not speaking out because they think they'll lose influence, their chance to influence governments to behave for the good of public health, then they are compromised. If they are 
funded by governments or by big pharma companies to do their research, which is very important research. It's, in, it's you know, resulting in cures for cancer, cures for COVID, whatever it might be. But if that is also compromising their ability or their desire to speak out honestly and transparently, then that too is, of course, going to raise questions around uh, their candour. And so there are many, many reasons why the public should be suspicious of pronouncements of doctors and scientists. I think that a healthy sort of interrogative approach to anyone in a position of authority is not just important, it's vital in a flourishing democracy. We should all be asking questions about people's motives, their desires and their power, really, and, and how they're using it or not using it. And all of that is very difficult. I think what, what's really sad regarding the, the, the kind of anti-vaxxer movement is there's such a, a loss of faith now in people having integrity. So it's right to question, but if we start blanket tarring or tarnishing all scientists as compromised and having no integrity and obviously being in the pay of big pharma when maybe these are individuals who literally have never been paid a penny by big pharma and go to work every day in the NHS and just try and do the best job they can for patients. That's enormously sad. Is it likely uh, that someone like Jeremy Farrer, who has devoted his life to caring for patients in low income countries, in particular, is it is it more likely that he is acting in good faith or he's a sort of evil capitalist in the pocket of Boris Johnson and Big Pharma? Clearly, that's less likely. But there's this sort of terrible blanket loss of faith now and people assuming the lowest kind of motives in others. And that is a terrible consequence, I think, of the pandemic. And I don't have an answer. Yes, in a way, the pandemic is that people with who are very keen on uh, conspiracy theories of all kinds have, in a sense, sort of moved on to the territory of the pandemic and um, found plenty of material for their for their paranoias, their conspiracy conspiracy theories, and so on. So they've come away from you know the twin towers and sort of moved into the the area yeah. of, of of the pandemic and indeed found some corruption. Uh, so. You have that. So the government has kind of made it easy for some conspiracy theories to operate because of elements of corruption in around the, the awarding of contracts and, and, and that sort of thing. And various other people in, in, the, in the question and answer have referred to the divisiveness uh, indeed. I was going to pick up on Debbie Epstein's question uh, a few minutes ago. The NHS is not only at risk of privatisation, but privatisation has already started, she says. Now today, Tajid Javid has announced that he's going to academicize hospitals. This is an approach that has already privatized schools. How can we oppose this and the rhetoric that academicization or academization, have you said, um, leads to improvement? Yes, I mean, the cunning trick with the academies, uh, what they did was to create these boards that take over the academy, take over the school, turn it into an academy. The academy is then able to do what it wants in order to raise cash so it can um, in a sense, become a business, mm. and the deeds um, rested nominally with the local council. So the title deeds of an academy school is somewhere buried in a town hall. But actually, and famously, one guy was a head teacher, started running beauty salons and leisure parlours and massage parlours on the school site. 
So the whole educational imperative gets sidelined. And then, of course, they also have priorities in terms of performativity. Um, and so you get with schools, you know, raising exclusion rates, rising exclusion rates, and you get what's called off-rolling, which is uh, people being excluded from taking exams because they'll lower the exam pass rate and therefore they won't look so good on the league table. So if you academicize hospitals, you can imagine all sorts of competitive aspects, not just about being able to cure people quicker, but obviously if you can nudge them out the door quicker, I can get all sorts of paranoid fantasies going here on the back of this. Uh, this was apparently announced today, so I missed this, presumably as they're shoring up Johnson's uh, career, they're coming up with new proposals as fast as they can. Um, so did you spot this, the, the point that Debbie Epstein's making? Yeah, I'm really glad that, um, thank you, Debbie, for, for raising this. So it was leaked yesterday to The Times, and I um, tweeted extensively about this yesterday. I was horrified when I read the story, um, because as with school academies, Sajid Javid is presenting this as a way of driving up performance of rooting out the failing practices of failing hospitals and dragging up standards, kicking, screaming, because, of course, the rhetoric of failing is just the way to motivate demoralised NHS staff. It's terrifying for many reasons explicitly in these plans. Um, explicitly is the fact that the boards may bring in so-called outside sponsors, outside sponsors being private companies, you know, Serco, you want to run this hospital. Absolutely terrifying because the moment you compromise healthcare with the profit motive, the moment you bring in private companies who are set to make profit out of sick patients like you and me, human beings, you are distorting their care. So you imagine for a second what the health equivalent of offloading is. So that means potentially the kind of patient who is inevitably going to lose the hospital money, the frail patient with lots and lots of different illnesses where you're never going to be able to demonstrate good performance with that patient, they'll be excluded in one way or another. All the things that you've talked about so eloquently this evening, Michael, the care that is captured in those intensive care patient diaries, none of that exists on a spreadsheet. It'll disappear because it's not efficient, it's inefficient. We should be having a throughput of patients. We should be getting through as many people as possible. That's not healthcare. Healthcare is a human, intimate, profoundly personal experience for patients. And if we lose the humanity of healthcare, we are, we are doing something terribly wrong. So this is incredibly worrying. And the, the question, Debbie's question about how do we oppose it? Well, we know that politicians, of every party listen to their postbags, they listen to their constituents. If they receive swarms and swarms of letters from people saying, do not do this, I oppose this, that matters and it counts for something. That's why so many people are probably going to put in their letters of no confidence um, regarding Boris Johnson. It's because of constituency postbags. So if you care about this, oppose it. Tell your MP on Twitter write them a letter. Don't use a, a pro forma that someone has helpfully posted. They don't they don't read those. But if you take five minutes to write your own email saying this is why I don't want this, people will listen. Politicians do listen and we need to fight this tooth and nail. Indeed. 
it's a great uh, note to, to to end on. We're coming to the end because it, you know what what Rachel is saying here is that some patients are more expensive than others in, in their terms, and we can't have a national health service that looks at somebody walking through the door and being wheeled into the door or coming in off an ambulance, saying, "Oh, that one's expensive, so I better not treat that person." That, yeah. that would be a disaster. You know that the, the purpose of care is care. No, it sounds solipsistic, but that is the point. You care. And so that, that is the core point. So thank you ever so much to all attendees, all of you who've come. Um, so I'm going to say thank you very much to um, Rachel this evening. Thank you. Uh, wonderful insights from inside the system. Uh, so and I'm going to say thank you very much to Michael, <laughs> interrupting you in case, in case this finishes. Thank you, Michael, for sharing for everything, everything you believe about the NHS, about what matters, not just in healthcare, but basically in life. You you are an inspiration. Thank you. Well, thanks again to all your attendees. Thank you very much for coming. All the best. And thank you to London Review Bookshop for putting on the event. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.